0: Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of the VC Pruner podcast, a podcast that provides a unique perspective of the startup world through the lens of venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. I'm your host Digjai and today I have with me one of the youngest guests on the show so far, Rahul Mathur, founder and CEO at Pay, which is a Mumbai-based insurtech startup that is trying to demystify insurance and its management for individuals and families across India. Prior to starting BhimaPay, Rahul was the startup lead at Accenture's Fintech Innovation Lab and a product manager at Laka Insurance, an early-stage insurtech startup based in London. In this episode, Rahul talks about his background and path leading up to BimaPay, the current insurtech landscape in India, striking a balance between founder vision and customer feedback in the initial stages of a startup, challenges faced as a first-time founder key advantages of building in public, and benefits of having multi-stage investors on your cap table. I absolutely enjoyed this chat with Rahul, and I hope you enjoy this discussion too. So, without much ado, let's dive in and find out what Rahul has to share. Hey Rahul, welcome to the VC Pruna podcast. Glad to have you here with us today.
1: Thank you, Digje. Super pumped for this one, and keen to get this started.
0: Awesome. So, you know, for, for those who don't know you yet, uh, maybe we can start with a brief intro about yourself and how you came about, you know, starting BimaPay.
1: Sure. So unlike most FinTech founders, I'm quite young. I'm 23. I studied abroad in the UK, you know, went then 2015, graduated in 2019 with a degree in statistics. Uh, Worked for about a year and five months and it was in the point when I came back to India in the middle of the pandemic that I began quote-unquote problem hunting. And one of the problems I realized was since I've been managing my family finances for the last five years, almost every aspect of it has been digitized really well right now, whether it's the payments, the credit card, the core banking to some extent, stock market and mutual funds of course. But the only aspect of our family's financial life, which was still fundamentally broken, still paper-led, still very opaque, was insurance. And that's really where pay started out, right? And you know, I can talk to you about how I juggled my, my day job and ran a couple of customer discovery calls. But very stereotypical, like entrepreneurship journey, right? You bumped into a, into a problem which you had faced yourself you know, struck you like a light bulb, you said, okay, before I make the plunge, let me go out there, let me talk to people. And that's what really get got me to start Bima Pay with three others, Kunal, Ishan and Abraz in early September 2020. And we launched uh, late October 2020. And here we are today, six months later, team of 11.
0: Awesome. And yeah, I mean, I can't wait to, you know, just dive deeper and talk about all these aspects, the early stage of startup building. Yeah, uh, But before that, since insurtech is is an interesting sector today it's a sunrise industry you've been following the sector for a while now uh, according to you you know what have been some of the key wins that the sector has seen over the last four or five years and what are some challenges that you still see you know that need to be overcome for players to enter and facilitate innovation in this space
1: yeah I think one of the biggest wins that InsurTech has had in India is what a lot of people in the banking sector will call the POSP model, right? Which is the point-of-sale person model. And there are a load of companies from a Simbo to a Turtleman, Turtleman being Sequoia back to a Bhima Mundi, Gram cover, and, and a fairly long list of players who've gone to different parts of India, you know, build a very simple technology interface for a point of sale person to be able to distribute insurance policies in real time on a phone on a tablet and that has really been like a step function improvement from the earlier you know agent coming to you making you sign 50 100 documents take that blank check and then take it back to a company and come back that's honestly been the biggest win right and maybe the second biggest win in InsurTech is the fact that a lot of the payments players, whether it's a phone pay, a pay and, and now you'll see an entire plethora, including Razorpay actually coming out with their insurance offering with Plum. So what you're starting to see is company, fintech companies that are already at scale, realizing that insurance is a great way to grow the lifetime value on already sunk customer acquisition costs. Mm-hmm. So whether it's Paytm getting that brokerage license first and then buying out Ajax QB, the insurance company or PhonePe launching 10 insurance products in the last year and in two months, That's, again, another incredible innovation because this is proprietary locked-in distribution and you're layering on insurance on top of that, which is typically how a lot of successful insurance plays work. So if you look at an HDFC life, the reason why it's such a successful company is they layer on those life and critical illness products on their sort of commercial, not their commercial, their home lending arm and their core banking arm, which is just growing lifetime value on the customer base. So those are two areas where I think InsurTech in India has been remarkably successful. But where I feel things still lack in terms of InsurTech is there has been no fundamental innovation, both on the product side for the customer. So the product is that insurance paper that you buy and very little innovation on how it's delivered to the end customer. So what I really mean by this is Somewhere down the line, I'm still buying the same HTFC Life 72-page document from PhonePay, from Paytm, or from HTFC Life, or from my agent. So the product innovation has been fairly limited. So that's a bit of a sort of white space. Again, very hard to crack because you need very large capital requirements. You have to raise a 30 million seed round just to get started. And the other side, which is where I think a company like DimaPay comes in, is we've acknowledged the fact that trying to resolve the product-related issues is very hard because the industry has sort of vertically compressed on those product issues and built, you know, a nice surface around it. So our approach is more what we call as transparency to the customer and sticking a strong user interface on top of a broken industry. And our lens was, look, you don't know what you're covered for, what you're not covered for, what actions you need to take with your policy. And let's just start there. And that was the genesis of the policy deconstruction algorithm. Know your insurance with Bima Pay. So our lens has always been, you know, there are very hard problems to solve, but let's start solving them first for the customer. And if you have some success there and some standardization there, you can backwards integrate and solve for the rest of the industry as well. So that's sort of my framework to look at how InsurTech has been successful in India. The POSP model the fact that we've had the payments players go into insurance and where the challenge for me sits is twofold, right? Whether it's the product innovation side or the technology sort of facing the consumer side are still white spaces in my mind.
0: Got it. I think that provides a very good context, you know, before we dive into and know more about VMA because it's still early days and people still don't understand insurance as a product, you know, leave aside understanding it as a sector. So it's still a black box. Uh, So, that, you know, brings me to the next question, which is what's the long-term vision and the problem statement that you're trying to solve for? Uh, and accordingly, what are the near-term and the long-term goals for you at BimaPay?
1: And I think the, the good way to answer this is tell you about where BimaPay is today, what we're solving for, and then how that takes us to solving certain the bigger picture. So what we want to do at Pay right now is fundamentally answer three key questions, right? Which is what insurance does my family have today? What am I covered for? What am I not covered for? And if I'm not adequately covered, what actions should I take right now? So what this allows us to do is give you a consolidated view of your family's insurance position, just like how a zerotha IND money gives that to you of your stocks and mutual funds. But since we've already run models on your policy document, which you will never read, we actually understand your policy on a fairly granular basis, and we also in the future, so last week we integrated DigiLocker in a couple of months down the line, we're going to integrate account aggregator, which is the banking data API feed. And we'll also do it maybe a year from today on the health stack side. So with the information about you, the information about your insurance policies, we can kind of triage where Digja is doing well, where he isn't doing well, where his family needs to top up on the cover. So when you think about insurance, right That two primary points that come up, which is the purchase and the claim. What we want to do on the claim side is since we already have information about DigJay and we have information about your insurance policy, we want to streamline something called the first notification of loss. So today what happens when DigJay needs to make a claim is he needs to pick up a phone, fill in a massive form and does all of this when he's either at the hospital or worse still, right, his mom or his dad are at the hospital with him and they have no idea how to fill up the damn form. In many cases, they don't even know what insurance DigJay has. So our thinking there on the claims front is, can we literally make it a multiplayer insurance product? So you can think of wallet bema pay as a consumer software like a WhatsApp. And all your mom, dad, your spouse, your sibling needs to do is come there, press a button, say there's an emergency, two or three super quick questions to triage, who is in the emergency, what kind of scenario it is, and we'd pre-populate the claim form since we already have your data. So that's on the claims front, right? One-click claim switch versus today's broken first notification of loss process. On the purchase side, right? A lot of people in India have started today really subscribing to mutual funds, exchange-traded funds. If you think about the job to be done with stock market investing, is you want to see a bit of upside, secure yourself for the future, right? You don't really care what your asset allocation is as long as it meets the goal and maybe some sustainability goal. If you think about a job to be done in insurance, go out there and talk to people who don't even understand insurance. What they really want from a functional and emotional lens is they really want protection from a downside event. If you look at the way insurance products are structured today, it was a bit like the stock market in the 1990s, right? Digjaya would be sitting there and saying, "I I want to buy calls on this, calls on that, buy that stock, not buy that stock. So the thinking here is today Digjaya needs to go buy motor insurance, buy life insurance, buy health insurance for self, for spouse, for parents. Then Digjaya has corporate health insurance, corporate health insurance for parents. It's a mess, right? So our thinking is, can we can we deliver the same magic that the SIP brought for the sort of stock market and mutual fund industry into the insurance industry? So on the purchase side, we really want to deliver that SIP for insurance, which is a single monthly or quarterly payment for all of your family's insurance needs. But the only way we can do that, and this is why we think of it as a bit of a sort of decision tree, right? We need to first answer who you are, what insurance do you have today, where the gap is, and using that information be able to help you on the purchase front, and using that information itself be able to help you on the claims front.
0: Got it. I think that unpacks the life cycle of you know any insurance consumer pretty well. You know, as you mentioned, there are clear pain points, and uh, you have a very clear path at least in mind to uh, approach and tackle that. I want to talk about. Founders when they're building at the early stages, you know, they have a vision and a roadmap in mind. Uh, but there are external factors. It could be, you know, regulations. It could be, you know, change in go-to-market, and uh, it could be the customer feedback that's coming in, which changes that and which calls for the iteration of that roadmap. And you've been talking to a lot of customers, and uh, that's how we also spoke for the first time. So how do you balance between, you know, your own vision and roadmap of a product? Yeah versus, you know, bringing in and absorbing customer feedback signals and uh, iterating the roadmap accordingly.
1: Yeah, it's actually quite a good one. And I'd say, you know, there's obviously like the Steve Jobs kind of, uh, you know, don't talk to customers, give them what they need. And I think every zero to one product has to have an element of that, right? Because Wallet by Bhima Pay was sort of a figment of imagination that I and the three other people starting up at Bhima Pay with me had in our minds. We sketched out something, but one of the things you realize is as a, as a founder, you need to be obstinate about the vision, but flexible about the details and what talking to users actually helps you with is nailing down what those details are. And to give you a specific example, right? We knew that customers would want, would appreciate a very simplified interface that explains to them what are they covered for? What are they not covered for and what core actions do they need to take? So that's almost like a vision, right? Because anyone can sit there on a whiteboard and write these three points, draw a box around it and say design sprint. But we went over the course of one and a half months talking about 150 users from that target persona. We actually went from whiteboard paper, which we'd scanned and showed people. To a fully functional Figma prototype, which could actually make you click through stuff and see insights. So that is really where talking to customers helps On on the usability testing, seeing how they're interacting with the product. Because quite often when they're interacting with the product and they get absorbed in it, they will pass one or two comments. So for example, we had completely forgotten that you have the tax deduction with your term and health insurance when we were building out the early wireframes. And a couple of customers said, uh, "Is there a way I can pull my tax information out of this as well?" And we said, "Okay, well, that's an interesting piece of consumer insight. But if you see, that's a piece of detail and not part of the vision. So I'd say start with your vision. You know, come from a personal problem, be obstinate about that because customers will tell you a million things, right? And then be flexible on the details basis how you see customers use the products." And you probably want to balance qualitative, quantitative, right? So qualitative side is you keep talking to the users and quantitative is you potentially sort of connect out an event tracking system like Mixpanel panel and really see where your customers are falling off in the journey. Where are they spending too much time? And you can sort of extrapolate what might be going wrong. So my approach is do talk to customers, but one of the mistakes we ended up making is we spoke to too many customers. And over the sort of last couple of months, what we've realized is every time you're launching a new feature, if it's, if it's not a major feature, rather than trying to shove in as many customer interviews as you can, we started adopting the rule of five. And what it says is, you know, five persona match interviews is actually perfect for you to run a sprint. Wish we had heard it before, because one thing we realized is as we kept iterating through our product vision. And you can almost use this as, as a gut test, right? If you start to hear too much of the same thing over and over and over again, it's a sign that you've saturated your learnings from talking to customers for that sprint. And therefore you should conclude it.
0: Absolutely. No, I think that makes sense. And uh, the point about weeding out the details from the customer feedback while keeping the vision, you know, crystal clear, I think that's very important and that's, probably the foundation, uh, you know, that all early stage uh, startups need to go a long way. So Rahul, you you are a first time founder, uh, and there are some challenges that come with it. So what were some, you know, key roadblocks that come to your mind that you had to face very early on? And what were the key areas of, you know, responsibilities that you had to over index or prioritize uh, in the first three months of starting up?
1: Yeah, it's definitely a valid one. And I think as a first time founder, Quite often, if you're a young first-time founder, all of those first-time founder pitfalls can be made up for by virtue of just you know, pummeling time, time, and time into resolving issues. So to be you know plainly honest with you, we didn't face too many issues. We haven't faced any major issues because we had a lucky break with raising money very early into our life cycle. We've had quite a few lucky breaks on the product side as well. Where again sticking to this idea of being obstinate about vision, flexible about the details, spending time with customers, we had a couple of light bulb moments which have turbocharged our product development. But one of the things I, I would say that that helped me as a first-time founder was the first four months. I was actually first three months, I was actually working Monday to Sunday, Monday like 7 a.m. to Sunday, 9 p.m. But just going through those motions, right, helped me understand what needs to be done in the company, what's lacking, where am I lacking, where is the team lacking? If I look into plug-in roles in the future, what kind of skill set would the person need? And in this year, we've sort of gone from about seven to 13, which is you know 11 full-time to contract. But by virtue of having had people in the company do all of those extra roles early on, it's helped us staff those roles better. So even though I've never had kind of management experience before. The one thing I sort of encourage people is if you can spend a bit of time upfront reading and I probably share like book recommendations once per month on Twitter. But I really found books like High Output Management by Andy Grove, where his sort of golden rule of no more than five to seven direct reports, task relevant maturity for delegation of work, super helpful. Also then reading stuff like uh, What You Do Is Who You Are by Ben Horowitz on company culture and how you need to be the person sort of leading the culture in the early days is you and not some document which you post on Notion. And there are quite a few other books like Inspired on the product side, Lean Canvas by Ash Moria. They're very good frameworks to have and I personally find I benefited a lot from the early days from them because it's honestly chaos, right? your first two months of the company, you're trying to fundraise, you're trying to show progress on the product, you're still convincing people around you, I am doing this, you're still very likely convincing yourself you're doing this, right? So in my case, it was convincing running away from central London, coming back to my sort of family house, which has been fairly good decision, you know, now that I look back at it initially, I was on some evenings, I'd be sitting there and being like, "Mm, do I really want to do this? But then I was like, nah, I am going to do this. So, The one thing I'd say is every first-time founder's journey is very, very different. But the one thing you can sort of do is prepare not yourself mentally, but arm yourself with the right set of tools to be able to sort of get through that phase. And the first is maybe just understand the frameworks that have been put out there, which are very, very helpful from some people who've executed at a very high scale maybe familiarize yourself with some of the power tools which you can use for productivity, right? Whether it's a Notion, a Figma or a Zapier or any other tool, just get comfortable with those because that'll actually let you leverage yourself up two or three X in designing flows and writing down documents, sharing it with investors. But I I would not prescribe like any advice. I'd say we've had it very easy on us and it's starting to get hard now as we go from a, pre-seed company to a seed stage company with set revenue milestones, set expectations, senior hires coming in. So in the early days, you obviously want to go really fast so you can, you know, see what sticks on the wall. But I'd say you also want to slow down at some point to take stock of where you are. What helped us as a company is pausing every fourth week to actually reflect on our progress in the previous sort of three weeks. So we do three weeks release, one week pause, reflect, clean up the legacy. And that's what sort of let us create some very strong internal processes, right? Whether it's, you know, a cross-functional handover from product and design to engineering with a feedback loop, or whether it's figuring out a good QA process with engineering. That's all come about because we took the time to reflect despite shipping like crazy people.
0: No, definitely helpful. And, you know, the point that you mentioned early on, you have those seeds of doubt when you're starting up, you have to convince yourself. Uh, at the same time, you know, the early team, it needs to be fairly confident about the founder, you know, because you're driving the culture, you're driving the uh, momentum, you know, for the early players. And what a lot of investors or, you know, anyone who's early in the journey is looking for is the learning curve that a founder has to go through. If that learning curve is caught in the early three months to six months, I think it sets a strong foundation, uh, you know, for you to have a fairly higher probability of success. You know, it it could come from reading books. It would come come by talking to early stage founders, talking to people in the space that you are trying to innovate or build a product in. So I think those are fairly, you know, valid points. Uh, You also mentioned one thing about chaos and, you know, I want to come to that. And just before that, uh, so that people know, you've been writing, sharing your experiences on Twitter, LinkedIn, Medium. I've benefited a lot just reading through that. Uh, And I'll encourage everyone who's listening, to this to, you know, go and read uh, Rahul's post. Uh, One of the topics that you touched upon recently is the concept of organized chaos. So if we can, you know, dive deeper into that, tell us about your framework of navigating that chaos at the early stages. And what do you mean exactly when you say organized chaos?
1: It's quite a good one, right? So the way I want you to kind of visualize this is think of a duck, which is in a pond. If you look at the duck from outside, and this is how an investor, the general public, the journalist looks at the company from outside, is very elegant, right? The duck is really gliding along the water, all seems well. But if you were a scuba diver, and I don't know why you'd scuba dive in the pond, first of all, but if you did that, what you'd really see is the duck's uh, sort of flippers are going all over the place just to stay afloat, right? And that is actually the reality of how a company operates until even a series B, right? Because you're typically taking a zero to one product. You find a set of users where things are working and then investors come and pour jet fuel. Your company grows, your user base grows, your problems also grow. And even at the sort of early stages, right? I'd say when you're starting up, unless you're already a very pedigreed operating team that's worked together for 10 to 15 years or maybe even three to four years at a very high level, you would not really know very well how to run a customer call, how to record stuff, how to do a handover properly because you're working with new people or maybe you're working with a college friend whom you haven't met for like four years. So there are a lot of things that could go wrong, right? And that's a period of chaos, right? But if you remember, Digjaya, we went over that, that reflection bit, that pausing every every fourth week or so. And if you stick with that and maybe do it pausing every end of the week in the early days, what you'll very quickly figure out is recurrent themes where chaos is taking place. Now, chaos is of two kinds, right? There's recurrent and one-time chaos. Your job to go from chaos to organized chaos is you get rid of that recurrent chaos right? and recurrent chaos comes in a QA process when you're deploying something to a server, when you talk to a customer, forget to record what they need, when a customer asks a query and you don't have an ops process to follow up with them and I can give 10 to 15 more examples. right? So your job as a founder is to find out where there's that recurrent chaos and put together a very streamlined, and I use streamline very carefully, process that will address the recurrent chaos. So all the chaos that's left in the company is that the fact that we have organized somewhere and then a one-time chaos. So one-time chaos can be you get a shout-out by a big influencer and your servers go completely on fire and then sort of down under. We've had that thrice and never been able to resolve it. The, the way I think of it is... If you're building a zero to one product, is you have to recognize that because your product is different and you are a product company, your org structure, your go-to-market, the way you recruit, the way you acquire customers may also be different. And therefore, you have to take a bit of a leap of faith. There will be some chaos, but you want to find some signal in that noise and streamline it. So specific examples of what we've done at the company is streamline our handover process, whether that's a product design, product design to engineering, engineering back to product design, a bit of a loop. We've also streamlined our server-side deployments so the server is no longer crash when we're uploading you know, very large volumes of machine learning code to the cloud. So we've also kind of streamlined an internal process because we're sort of labeling a lot of training data. We have operations support. And we streamlined the interaction between our product product owner and the operations support as well. So three specific examples. But these were actually the cause of 90% of all of our errors in the company. And that's dropped out completely, right? So we actually operate like a well-oiled machine now. And while you go through all of this, right, you also start documenting all of your workflows, document your thinking. And that comes back to really help you when you onboard your new hires, So that's something that helped us as well. And I encourage you as you go from that chaos to organized chaos, streamlining processes, document them. And you'll find in 90% of the time is the founder and the co-founders have to sit on a Sunday afternoon and do this. But I'd rather make that investment because today I finally have my my entire Sunday back to me and onboarding a new hire is just giving them a 20 minute read time document before we jump onto a call.
0: I think valid points, you know, having those processes streamlined and uh, written down helps in bringing that consistency in terms of, you know, what's working, what's not working and not bringing that recurrent chaos, as you mentioned. Rahul, I want to switch gears here and talk about, uh, you know, something that a lot of founders are actively doing, which is putting themselves out there, sharing their processes, learnings, failures on, on social media and just with their customer base. And it helps in two ways, right? One from the startup's perspective, definitely helps in bringing in early adopters, even before the launch, uh, and saves a lot of marketing dollars early on. Uh, And second, from the customer standpoint, you know, they're able to know the founder, the persona behind the brand or the product they're planning to use, which is an important aspect today for customers to make their buying decision. I'm sure there are many more benefits to building in public. And I want to get your take on it as to what is your interpretation of building in public? And what are the benefits that you see coming out of you know, this approach?
1: Yeah, it's actually quite a nice point. And to be honest with you, building in public is just literally what you know founders like Dharmesh Shah from HubSpot were doing. But now taking it from content, uh, sort of SEO optimized blogs to Twitter threads and LinkedIn posts, right? It's just that when HubSpot and Dharmesh started up, you didn't have these, these agglomerations of the early adopter and innovator. So, these guys had to go down the content route, right? It's the same idea here, right? If you think about what the team at HubSpot did in the early days, would actually beat everyone out by writing really high-value content on the web, funnel SEO, funnel traffic to it. And it's the same idea with building in public today, right? You know that tons of people on Twitter and LinkedIn. You know that when you get those one or two good retweets or if you're consistent on certain platforms like LinkedIn, you can build a very large sort of base of engaged audience. But it also kind of boils down, and i say building in public is the direct-to-consumer or direct-to-startup equivalent of the HubSpot-style blog red approach. Because HubSpot was selling to scale enterprise, large enterprise, enterprise clients. Whereas if you look at what Bima Pay and a couple of other companies doing these sort of build-in public approaches, Your buyer is actually either an individual or a startup founder or startup executive, which is pretty much an individual. So you're going to where your target buyer persona is, which is exactly what any piece of startup literature would say, right? You have the concept of a product channel fit and you have a rough idea of what kind of channel your sort of customers are sitting on. So you just mold a product, which is your content towards that and then get them into your product. So for me, like the short statement I put out there is that build in public is almost like the good old SEO. It's just that you do not want to do SEO in a mature industry like insurance because I cannot put a team of 17 content writers like Digit, Echo and HDFC Life. And I do not want to do SEM because I cannot afford the, the sort of burn which they sustain on this. So build in public is a nice way a to sort of acquire, like you mentioned, that early adopter or that innovator, but it also kind of lets you unlock a differentiated distribution, right? Because these are people whom you have acquired, whom you're engaging with, they'd likely be more willing to talk to their friends about your product than a paid acquisition. And the final bit that I would say is it does not work for every company and should not be something every company does. So think about where your buyer sits. If your buyer sits and the buyer with the budget to make an instant purchase sits on social media, like a Twitter, like a LinkedIn, maybe even an Instagram, right? Get on there and start posting some stuff. That's my like three cents on, on building public.
0: No, definitely helpful. And you know, the next thing that I want to discuss is fundraising and raising funds at a pre-product stage is rare. Usually second time founders are able to achieve this normally, especially in India where we are still, you know, maturing as an ecosystem Uh, and the investors need to have a very strong conviction around the idea and more importantly, the trust on the founder to execute that idea. So, you know, what, according to you were the key drivers that allowed you to raise those funds at a pre-product stage? And what do you think you got right to be able to, you know, go through that hurdle and get those funds?
1: Yeah. So I think the, I mean, I've also mentioned this in a post quite a while back where I spoke about luck in fundraising. Our lead investors actually came to us completely by accident. So I know they were tracking us because they were signed up to my newsletter, et cetera, et cetera. But we got a bit lucky getting into them. One of their associates met our target persona. So I hounded the associate said, please do a UX call with us. Associate liked the idea. Took it to a partner, partner liked it, partner took it to IC. IC sort of gave us our first check on a blank company back then. But one of the things that I would say is we were not like idea stage. We already had a functional prototype. There were four of us, two engineers, designer, myself. We were making a fair bit of progress, you know, getting ready to start writing code and stuff. And one thing I think which which was right for us, not something we got right, was market timing fit, right? Insurance is still very, very hot. Everyone's mother and father is trying to do something in insurance. Uh, The other thing that probably stood out was the fact that I had invested a lot of time two years prior to that writing about InsurTech. So when the venture investors came across me, yes, I was first time founder, but I had already had an informal conversation with them in some cases, many months prior about my views on InsurTech in India. And a lot of those investors didn't convert, at least the investors who converted were aware of the fact that I'd written a newsletter on InsurTech. I was looking at the Indian space and sometimes like establishing a bit of, for lack of words in the SEO sense, domain authority does help a bit because you do come across the investors as someone who's thought about the space researched about the space and sort of therefore has identified an opportunity. So you come in at it with like the expert lens with customer lens, which often you know compels investors and also depends on your ask, right? We had not come in asking for $3 million uh, seed infusion, uh, probably one sixth or even one fifth of that. So it was not a very large hurdle for someone to cross in the early days especially given how large the fund sizes have become now. Maybe the only thing we got right is, look, we used Sequoia's PitchTech template, stuck to it, made sure we didn't spend more than 45 seconds per slide, took a bit of inspiration from Y Combinator and really dumbed the damn business down, right? The way I just explained the business from a pure technical lens to a SaaS VC who was a friend is I said, look, Bima Pay is... Consume, wallet by Bima Pay is a consumer software product because you can download it, you can use it on the web. DigJay can use it, add his family members. It's meant for a family. So it's a multiplayer product with a hierarchical access. Very simple mental model to throw there. Freemium business model because DigJay can use it without paying. If DigJay wants the premium version, has to buy an insurance product through us. And there is after-sales support, which is the claims thing there. So really kind of dumbing it down to what your sort of the venture partner, the firm will try to understand does help them.
0: I mean, not getting lost in the details. And at the same time, I think that credibility and showing some kind of traction, not traction in terms of product, but maybe traction in terms of how you got there to, you know, come and pitch that idea. What's the background there? And what's the kind of work that you put in before that? You know, the other question that I had was, who do you raise funds from initially? And how do you decide that there's a constant debate about you know trying to bring in angel investors micro vcs uh, uh, on the cap table early on versus you know uh, expose yourself to signaling risk if you are you know bringing in uh, tier 1 investors so yeah. for the benefit of the listeners if you could tell us you know what was your approach and why do you think that's the right approach for you at Bmap at this point
1: yeah so i think i think we've done a mix of everything right we have a micro vc which is actually an angel syndicate We have a small VC and we've got a multi-stage. The one thing you do get by taking multi-stage money early is a rare opportunity to be part of their sort of broader network and you get to see companies that are seven years ahead of you, companies that are with you, companies that are three years ahead of you. And they do provide you with a platform which has a lot of support, whether it's on the recruitment front, whether it's on the sort of just general like legal and finance front. And when you've got a larger sort of team, there are also more specialized people at the company, right? Maybe an investor who's done fintech, another investor who's done software, and you can have a conversation with them because you're already their portfolio company and it does help. And, And I think in our case, since the angels do not sit individually on the cap table, but instead there's a syndicate which sits on the cap table, it's primarily the syndicate lead engaging with us. In our case, a syndicate lead has enough experience in the insurance space and therefore is actually quite valuable, right? It's good to have someone who's been there, done that, has seen regulatory pressure and same with the other sort of smaller VC fund, right? They have a couple of insurance investments now in India and globally. So they understand how, you know, messy the space can get. But I really feel it's down to how you want to engage with your investor versus how your investor wants to engage with you at least up until a series A when, you know, the ticket size becomes really serious and they're going to hound you every week for an update on revenue. So in my case, I find uh, I engage with a lead investor on a less frequent basis than one of our, than the smaller VC because a smaller VC is also ex-entrepreneur who sold a business in India. And therefore, there are a lot of learnings there in terms of you know, whom to speak to, how to go about certain aspects of legal and compliance, which is super helpful. So it's more driven by you in the early days versus being driven by an investor. Even if you're quote unquote incubated by a larger fund, it's still down to you because they're giving you the money in the early days is very little governance oversight. So in our case, there actually is no board seat. There is an expectation that they get a management information report once per month a quarterly financial update and you need to drive how you want to use them if you need help like i mentioned yesterday like don't hesitate to reach out to them because they've already given you their money and the, and the only next thing they can do is try to help you to get some part if not multiple return on that money
0: no uh, definitely a valid point and you know it uh, it talks about how you should go about choosing your investors, because you are in a way just acquiring their knowledge, acquiring their experiences by getting them on board, which is very valuable at the early stages. And as a founder, identifying what kind of knowledge or uh, value you want to bring to, you know, your company in form of investors along with that capital. I think that's very, very important. So with that, we are back to our final segment, which is the rapid fire. I'll shoot some questions and hope to get your honest opinions on the same. Okay. First one, uh, one thing that you'd like to change to improve the state of the startup ecosystem in India? Uh,
1: literally reduce the number of documents related to a startup. I mean, I've got a CIN, TIN, TAN, PAN, <laughs> GST, PF, and a whole plethora of registrations. Can you just give me a unique enterprise identifier? Just an Aadhaar for a company would solve all of my issues. That's all I'd ever ask for because it, 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 it's, it's a soul draining exercise doing all of that uh, paperwork for different pieces of company identification.
0: Agreed. Agreed. If you had to give a TED talk, what topic would you choose and why?
1: The one topic i choose is, uh, is is learning how to accept advice or accept feedback from people. And the reason why I say this is that lots of people giving gyan, many of whom don't have context, And when you are someone who's really looking for help, you will catch on to any strand of wisdom that comes your way. But you probably want to recognize that when taking advice or accepting feedback, yes, you have to sort of appreciate it. But B, it's down to you whether to accept or to discard it. And more importantly, if you are accepting it, you have to understand and appreciate the context in which the person who's giving you the advice had learned the lesson
0: Last question, uh, VCs and founders from the ecosystem that you admire and look up to.
1: Well, this is an interesting one. Uh, I think on the founder side, definitely Kunal Bell from Snapdeal, Rohit Bansal as well. I think those guys have been through hell and high waters and finally come out like successful as a profitable company. And if you look at their portfolio as well, right, absolute cracker with what those guys have been doing with at, at Titan. Uh, on the VC front, this is a very tricky one, but I actually think In terms of one of the VCs actually executed incredibly well. Uh, Initially as an operator, now as a VC is probably Harsha from Lightspeed. So first sort of product hire at Ola, seen that company kind of grow up. And finally, like a cross between VC founder is a Razorpay sort of uh, founders as well. So Shashank and Harshan, I think they've built an incredible company, right? Started out in payments, layering, lending with Razorpay capital. Uh, you know, layering the payroll, the admin bits with Opfin, banking with uh, RazorpayX. It's a fantastic business. Probably the only one which I'd sink any money I make into an IPO uh, investment.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Rahul, this has been incredible and, you know, we could have gone on and on, uh, but just in the interest of time, we'll pause and maybe leave, uh, you know, some questions for the next time when we have you on the show. For sure. Thank you so much for doing this. And uh, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Likewise, likewise, Digjay. Thank you.
0: Hello, and welcome back to yet another episode of the VC Pruner podcast, a podcast that provides a unique perspective of the startup world through the lens of venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Dikjai, and today I have with me one of the youngest guests on the show so far, Rahul Mathur, founder and CEO at Bema Pay which is a Mumbai-based insurtech startup that is trying to demystify insurance and its management for individuals and families across India. Prior to starting BhimaPay, Rahul was the startup lead at Accenture's Fintech Innovation Lab and a product manager at Laka Insurance, an early-stage insurtech startup based in London. In this episode, Rahul talks about his background and path leading up to Pay, the current insurtech landscape in India, Striking a balance between founder vision and customer feedback in the initial stages of a startup, challenges faced as a first-time founder, key advantages of building in public, and benefits of having multi-stage investors on your cap table. I absolutely enjoyed this chat with Rahul and I hope you enjoy this discussion too. So, without much ado, let's dive in and find out what Rahul has to share.